Open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Many years ago, about 25 to be, to be exact, everyone was captivated by trial. It was the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you all remember the O.J. Simpson trial? 1994, believe it or not. Do you feel old now? NFL great, TV actor, broadcaster was arrested and charged with the murder of his wife and her boyfriend. It was dubbed the trial of the century and had the dream team, as they called it, for defense lawyers. It was estimated that 95 million people watched it at one time, in particular the white bronco that was being pursued down, I think it was the five, in, in L.A. USA Today said it was the most publicized trial in American history. It's kind of a sad note, isn't it? The news was filled with it every night. It lasted for 11 months, and there were live cameras in the courtroom, and so people watched it like a soap opera during the day. The final verdict of the trial was was not guilty, making famous Johnny Cochran's phase, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, speaking of the leather glove of the of the murderer. And the trial was a travesty of, of justice. Everyone knew that OJ was guilty. The civil trial later found him just that. O.J. himself admitted his guilt to several others, but he could never be tried again criminally. Well, today we're going to observe a far more significant trial that ends in an opposite verdict. It ends in a guilty verdict. And as we look at it, we're going to witness the greatest injustice that has ever been perpetrated, ever, in the world. In Mark 14, the sinless Son of God will be tried by the leaders of Israel, the ones who are supposed to recognize Him as the Messiah, and He will be condemned to die for kangaroo crimes in an illegal court. If you haven't been with us, we we have just moved into the crucifixion section of the Gospel of Mark. We're working through that verse by verse. And last week we saw how we got to this point, how He was set up by one of His own disciples, that's Judas, We observed the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the end, we saw that he stood alone walking toward this trial. All of the disciples ran away. Even an unnamed boy fled from him. And the point was, everyone was against him and everyone was alone. The religious establishment, the rulers of Israel, the political establishment, the local magistrate, the secular establishment, the Roman authorities, Jews and Gentiles, educated, uneducated, slave and free, all were against Him, and He was rejected by all so that all could come to God through Him. He stood alone for all so that all could look to Him alone and be saved. And today, we're going to see Him condemned so that all who are condemned can gain mercy through His judgment. Aren't you glad for that? I am. Jesus stands before six trials total in His condemnation. And we'll see all of them before before we're done. 
Three were Jewish and three were Roman. And in every every moment, every time he, he appears, prophecy is fulfilled. We have the blessings of all four Gospels. And when you, when you put the story together, we, we see a, a beautiful picture of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion. What we see about Jesus is not beautiful. It's beautiful the fact that the Lord weaves it together. After his arrest in the garden, Jesus is taken to Annas, the former high priest in John 18. Jesus is led from Annas to Caiaphas for the Sanhedrin trial. That's what we're going to look at here this morning. Then Peter denies Jesus. The Sanhedrin convene a morning trial to formalize what they did illegally at night. Jesus is sent to Pilate then with a death decree. We're in the Roman section now. Pilate sends him to Herod, the ruler of Galilee in Luke 23. Jesus is sent back to Pilate, who reluctantly condemns him to death. That's in Mark. He's crucified. And then Joseph of Arimathea asks for his body, and he's buried. Today we're going to see the very first Jewish trial, and it is an act of extreme injustice. It's an act because it's all set up ahead of time. Everyone plays their part, and the end result is the predetermined guilty verdict before they ever walk into the trial. Jesus is determined guilty before He's ever tried. It's an injustice because Jesus is not guilty. It's a kangaroo court held by the rulers of Israel who intentionally disregard the law, their own law, to accomplish their intended purpose. And Mark has set this thing up like a very common Court scene. There is the court convened in verse 53 through 54. There are the witnesses called in verse 55 through 59. The prosecutor, which is the high priest, begins to interrogate. He's not supposed to be the prosecutor, but he steps into that role, as I'll show you. In verses 60 through 61, the defendant confesses. The verdict is declared. And then the condemned is abused. <clears throat> we'll call him the defendant because he's not really guilty, but they would say he was condemned. If you put all that together, Mark gives us six stages to the unjust condemnation of Jesus. And he begins by telling us how the court is convened in verse 53. Look, if you would, at verse 53, it says, they led Jesus away, that's away from the garden after they bound him and arrested him. They led him away to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Notice it says all, when they gathered together. Mark starts by telling us the Sanhedrin is, is gathered he doesn't tell us about the stop to Annas' house, who's the former high priest. You might think of Annas from the movie Godfather. He is like Vito Corleone and Caiaphas is like Michael Corleone. Annas is the Godfather. He's not the acting high priest, but he is in absolute control over all of the corruption on the Temple Mount and, and Caiaphas is carrying it out. And so Mark doesn't tell us about the stop to Annas' house. It's probably uh, provides an opportunity to gather the full council together. And whenever it says all the scribes, elders, and chief priests, it's the whole Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin 
was the highest court in Israel. Their judicial system worked very similar to the way that ours does because ours is based on the same biblical model from Deuteronomy and from the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy lays out very important aspects of justice. There's a presumed innocence. There's the demand for corroborated witnesses. There's a trial uh, by your peers. There's a punishment that fits the crime and many more. And this was throughout the land of Israel. There were local courts, and then there was a national system. If a town, take some of the towns in Galilee, like we've heard, like Capernaum, if a town had at least 120 men, they would have a local court called a Sanhedrin. There were more than one Sanhedrin. The word means the, the sitting together or gathering together. So if there was 120 men, they would have a gathering together, a Sanhedrin. It's a, it's a place to adjudicate these types of, of crimes and issues. And the court would be composed of 23 men so that there couldn't be any hung juries. It's not an even number. And these men were called elders or, or judges of the town. And one of them would be designated a ruler. And so all of that would be familiar to you as you go through the gospel about the elders or the rulers of Israel. These are the ones that that would have been the head, the the, the chief justice, if you will, of these state-level courts. Jerusalem, however, had what was called the the Great Sanhedrin. You can think of that like the Supreme Court. It was made up of 70 men plus one which was the high priest. And as I said, in this case, it's our Caiaphas. They arrived at the, the makeup of 70 men by having 24 chief priests, 24 elders, and 24 scribes and Pharisees, and then you minus one. And so again, you have this odd number of 71. So there couldn't be any, any hung trials. And when the council convened, the members would sit in a, in a semicircle and they would sit on a raised platform, all 71 men. And at the, at the right and the left hand of this, of this Sanhedrin, the semicircle, there would be a, a, a clerk on both ends to record everything that, that takes place. It's like a court reporter we have today. They had two, one on each side. And then in the very center would be the, the defendant. There would be a seat for a defendant right in the middle, and then there would be a seat for the witnesses, which there had to be at least two. And then the trial would would be conducted. Jesus, in Mark 14 here, is obviously before the, the national system. This is the great Sanhedrin. It's in Jerusalem. And Mark's point, this is not an informal meeting. As you can see by the eyewitnesses and the testimony that is called for. Some will try to argue that this was not a real trial. This was, this was like something that they set up to see if they had all their ducks in a row. This is clearly a real trial, although it is illegal. And while it's an in, it's not an informal gathering, it is a formal one, it's a very unjust one. You have an official gathering here that broke almost every precept of God's justice laid out in Deuteronomy. Listen to a summary from MacArthur in the murder of Jesus of everything that was violated. No criminal could be tried at night, and yet this trial was in the middle of the night. In fact, no criminal could be tried in the afternoon, which is why they had a follow-up legal trial the very next morning. 
No accusation was to be accepted against anyone without two or three witnesses, according to Deuteronomy. And this trial has no witness agreeing. No death penalty could be given without 24 hours passing before they're actually put to death, 24 hours, so that if someone would come along with information that would that would free the person or change the verdict, there was an opportunity to be able to hear it. But but Jesus is on the cross in a few hours. By 9 a.m., Mark says, he's on the cross. And by 3 p.m., he's dead. Witnesses whose testimony determined guilt had to cast the first stone in execution. Jews executed by stoning. And the witnesses, those who, who, who accused somebody and their witness was used to convict, they had to step forward and cast the first stone to put more weight on the fact of what they were doing. You couldn't just come in and make an accusation and walk away. You were the one that dropped the rock first. And yet these judges of Jesus let the Romans do it. Judges had to fast through a trial, taking seriously their responsibility. No such thing happened here. Trials were never allowed on the Sabbath or on a feast day like Passover or on the day before a feast like Passover. And yet this trial is both on the feast day for Jesus as a Galilean and on the day before for the Sanhedrin members, both in violation of the law. The Sanhedrin also could not initiate charges. They could only investigate Charges. But this is all they're doing. And if the judges were not unanimous, the person was freed. This trial is illegal from start to finish. And more than that, the verdict has already been decided before the trial ever starts. Listen to Matthew 26, verse 59. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. That was their goal. The verdict had already been been given. The trial was about coming up with a charge, not guilt or innocence. And you can clearly see that with the search for witnesses. The witnesses are called in verse 55. Now, verse 54 says Peter had followed at a distance. We're going to cover that next week. Mark places that there as the backdrop. Peter's still in the backdrop, and we're going to see his denial next week. But I want you to pay attention to verse 55. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain a testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. And it goes on, and during this witness phase, you have this solicited testimony, which was supposed to come to the high priest, not solicited. It was inconsistent testimony, there was false testimony, and that turns into very frustrating testimony for the high priest that we're going to see. He steps in and try to rescue this this contrived trial. Because they needed to find a witness to supply a charge, witnesses are called. And in capital cases, which is what they're they're needing here, these witnesses are are heavily scrutinized. It's a serious thing to condemn somebody to death. The Bible clearly teaches the death penalty, but it's a serious thing. Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15, Numbers 35.30, all required unanimous evidence 
of at least two witnesses to condemn somebody to death. And they've wanted to kill him since Mark chapter 3. They found the betrayer in Judas the week of the Passover, and now they needed witnesses to condemn him, to complete their plot. And I want you to notice it says the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony. And they're not finding any. Not even Judge Judy does this, right? The judge is not supposed to look for testimony. So let me ask you a question. Where did these witnesses come from? It's in the middle of the night on Passover or preparation for Passover, whether you're a Galilean or others. You're with your family. So where are witnesses in the middle of the night? And how convenient that they just happen to be at the high priest's home at the time that they bring Jesus in for the arrest. The fact that the witnesses are here tells you this is a sham. They were alerted at Jesus' arrest that they're part of the facade. And their testimony, the Bible says, is inconsistent. Look, if you would, at verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And it was necessary that it would be. In the Jewish judicial procedure, the witnesses actually function as the prosecution. So the judges are the ones, the Sanhedrin are the ones that determine whether what the witnesses say is accurate. And they're evaluating, do they agree? Do they corroborate? And if there's enough evidence from the witnesses, then the individual is condemned. And so the witnesses function as the prosecution. And they each give their evidence individually and verbally in the presence of judges and the accused. You get to hear. You face your accuser, according to Deuteronomy. But these witnesses were bribed, so they can't even get their story straight and their details don't agree. And so they resort to making things up. It's inconsistent. It's also false. Look, if you would, at verse 57. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say that I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Even when they tried to lie, even when they tried to make things up, there was no consistency, which is repeated twice because consistency is required for a legitimate condemnation. Jesus didn't say what they said. They're referring to John chapter 2, verse 19, in a response to unbelieving leaders that request for a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. You remember what Jesus says? He says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. It's a prophecy. You will destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. That'll be the sign that you'll get, the resurrection. Jesus says the only sign that you're going to have is the resurrection. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 16, you remember the discussion between the rich man and Abraham? When when the rich man says, send someone back from the dead to save my brothers, they'll believe him. And you remember what Abraham says? They won't even, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe the Bible 
they're not even going to believe if someone rises from the dead. And that's the connection that Jesus is making here. You wouldn't even believe that. He didn't say he would destroy the temple. You know why they picked this statement? Because the tearing down of a temple or the destruction of a, of a sacred place, the desecration of a religious place, is a capital offense to the Romans. So they choose this, this, this specific accusation when they begin to make them up in order to further the murderous plot. It's very well thought out. Jews don't have capital punishment rights under the Romans, and so they need a crime Rome would punish. And so they, they try this. They ultimately get him on, he's going he's, he's gonna, to uh, uh, overthrow Rome. He's going to start a riot. He claims himself to be the king. And you remember, Pilate doesn't buy that in the process. Now, I don't want you to... I mean, I understand we're, we're thinking about Jesus and we're thinking about the trial and how illegal this is. But I think this is an opportunity to talk about the danger of bearing false witness. This is no minor matter. It's punishable by death, according to the Old Testament. It's a far cry from the way it works on the social media world today, isn't it? You can make any accusation without any evidence whatsoever to the, and the world will call for somebody's head within a few hours. And then they're on to something else. Doesn't matter whether it's true. Doesn't matter whether it's checked out. Literally, from the moment it hits Twitter or whatever, to the time that it makes CNN or something else, it's, it's a matter of hours. But in God's law, God cares both about the the punishing of the guilty and also the protecting of the innocent. And so there is a there's a requirement of corroborated testimony and investigation of that testimony, and there's also judgment if you are found to bear to to have borne false witness. According to Deuteronomy nineteen sixteen. If a person falsely accuses someone of a crime, then they receive whatever the penalty would be for that crime. Look at Deuteronomy 19. If a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witnesses prove to be a liar giving false testimony against the fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. And the rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid. Afraid of what? To not bear false witness. <laughs> And never again will such an evil thing be done among you. If you accuse them of a crime that was worthy of the death penalty, like these individuals doing to Jesus here, that according to the law of Moses, you would be put to death. It sure made you think twice about bearing false witness. It should also make you very careful today about believing whatever you read, Right? And it should also make you very careful about repeating something that is untrue, because if that's true, then, then you become an accessory to a false witness. So be careful. 
the people intent on destroying someone will find a way and they probably do not care about this false witness because they were, were bribed and brought along by the very leaders that would have held them in contempt. And so you have the high priest's interrogation. Now, I said before, the high priest is not supposed to be the one who's the prosecutor. The high priest is not even supposed to, to speak. The witnesses are supposed to speak. But look at verse 60, if you will, what happens. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? The high priest does something very abnormal. This would have been shocking, probably, to everybody that was there. And you can see the frustration building. He calls for the witnesses. They don't give consistent testimony when they try to make it up. That's false testimony. That doesn't work. And so the gang leader steps forward. What do you do if you're the prosecutor in a case and the evidence is not helping your case? You try to rattle the defendant, right? You ramp up the emotion. You, you get in their face. You, you try to say some, get them to say something that will implicate them, th- themselves. And so Caiaphas attempts to get Jesus to, to incriminate himself. And no doubt he wanted to look impartial and lay back and, and let everyone else do all the dirty work and only pronounce judgment after the witnesses brought the evidence, but it, it doesn't work, so he has to step forward and oppose Jesus himself. And it wasn't just because the witnesses failed. Look at what else it says here. Look at verse 61. But he kept silent and did not answer. All the while where this inconsistent testimonies. When I think about this, 71 men, the high priests and all the rulers at, at, the, at the Supreme Court of Israel are arrayed and gathered. You've already, been, you've already been arrested and bound and led to Annas and now to Caiaphas. So you already know what's going on, even if you're not the Son of God, but Jesus knew clearly what was going on. You're seated in front of this of this this semicircle of all of these leaders, and you're listening to these witnesses bear false testimony against you, and every time they say something, Jesus is silent. He says nothing. How do you feel when you think you've done something, when someone thinks that you've done something wrong that you didn't do? You want to correct them, right? You want to set the record straight. You want your day in court. And our tendency is to defend ourselves, to correct testimony when it's inconsistent. They'll say something that's 98% correct, but we want to say, no, 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 wait a minute, you got 2% of that wrong, right? I did all of that, but let me correct these two things. And the high priest is watching, the court case is falling apart, and Jesus is saying nothing. Just as Isaiah 53 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent. He did not open his mouth. 
The unlawful gathering hasn't worked. The illegitimate witnesses haven't worked. And now the illegal interrogation is failing. The high priest is saying, you know what's going on here? You're not going to say anything? And Jesus says nothing. Look at verse 61. He kept silent. He did not answer. And again, pressing in again, the high priest was questioning him. And now the questioning changes. Watch this. Look at what he asked him. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? The high priest who is supposed to be a judge steps in and says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Now don't miss this hypocrisy. He calls the Messiah the Son of the Blessed One. Have you ever uh, stumbled across a Jewish website or seen a Jew- Jewish writing, and they'll 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 do something like G, and then they'll do an underscore and a D, like they won't write out the name of of God. That's exactly what what the high priest is doing here. It's an act of sacredness, so you you don't even say the name. It's so sacred that that I won't even say the name. I won't even say the name Yahweh. So, are you the son of the blessed one? The irony is he's doing this while holding a a bogus trial to condemn an innocent man. These leaders were hypocrites to the end. It's just like a spiritual fraud, pretending to be serious about religious matters while brimming in their hearts with corruption. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23 when he condemned them? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus doesn't do away with the law. He says you should do both. And here they are doing the very thing that Jesus pronounced in the woe. Injustice lacking mercy and unfaithful, committing gross injustice without mercy while they're making sure they don't misuse God's name. Trial takes a dramatic turn in verse 62. Here's Jesus' confession. Jesus finally speaks. Can you imagine what the courtroom looked like when he begins to open his mouth? He asked him a different question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. He uses the name of God from the Old Testament. Ego me, Yahweh, I am. At first, Jesus is silent. There's his silence of innocence. He doesn't answer these, these false accusations because he's innocent. He doesn't have a need to defend himself. He knows he's innocent. But he gives an answer when it's related to his identity. He is unflappable, and he doesn't answer because the charges are not only lies, but more importantly, they have nothing to do with his mission. But now he speaks, and what he says is colossal. I mean, this is the Christological pinnacle in the Gospel of Mark. Mark begins with saying, I am, I'm writing to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we move 
up to Caesarea Philippi, where the disciples finally confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now you have the moment where Jesus himself says, I am the Son of the living God. Matthew 26.63 says the high priest invokes an oath before he asks him this question. He says, I adjure you by the living God. That's the weightiest oath possible upon a subject. Punishment of God if you lie. I'm asking you a question and I'm binding you by God Himself. Who will punish you to death if you lie? What, what irony is while this man is lying the whole time, not worrying about the judgment that he's going to face. And now Jesus publicly declares, I am. He answered unequivocally about his identity because that's what must happen. All the way through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has stated, has avoided stated, public, stating publicly what, 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 what this says. Right here, what he says right here. You remember what he does when he heals people? Don't tell anybody. Go, go fulfill the law of Moses. Don't tell anybody that I did this. You remember when they want to make him Messiah and King in Galilee? He slips through the crowd because it wasn't his time. Even at the defining moment in Caesarea Philippi, when Peter speaks for the group and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus specifically says in the Gospel of Mark, tell no one about me. And now with the question of who you are, who are you? He answers very directly. You know why he does this? So the reason he is sentenced is absolutely clear. He answers nothing about being an inconsistent prophet or a bad teacher. He will be condemned because he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that's why he answers here. And look at what else he says in verse 62. (laughs) Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting with the clouds of heaven, or sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He says, I am, and then what comes next is ominous. He answers in two parts. He says plainly, I am the Messiah, and then he quotes two Old Testament passages. And in one quote he's sitting, and the other one he's coming. Do you see that? The Son of Man sitting at the right hand. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with clouds. Notice he does the same thing the high priest does with God's name. At the right hand of power is a reference to God without saying His name. It's because He knows the charge coming before it's delivered and He's not guilty of blasphemy. He won't play into their hands. Jesus says the Son of Man will be exalted to the right hand, to the throne of heaven. That's what the right hand means. This relates to the exaltation of Christ. It is resurrection. The second quote refers to the Son of Man coming with clouds. It's a very different event. It's a quote from Daniel 7.13 that refers to the coming of the Son of Man in judgment at the end of history. He will come with clouds... And the Ancient of Days will grant him dominion over the whole earth, is what Daniel 7 says. You put all that together and Jesus' answer 
is, yes, I am Messiah. I am the Son of God. And when you do what you're going to do, I will rise and be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And from that position, you will see me come in judgment. And in that day, the roles will be reversed. The Son of Man will judge you who are judging me now. And the high priest thought that he was maneuvering Jesus into a confession by asking him about being the Messiah, but it was the other way around. And he's so blind, he thinks he's done a great job when he hears Jesus' response. He doesn't even realize that he's fulfilled God's plan and condemned himself. Look at how he responds. Verse 63. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? Leviticus 21 says the high priest of Israel could never do that unless God was blasphemed. It's a judicial act meaning to render a a guilty verdict. And probably patting himself on the back, the other leaders likely praised him after the trial for his wisdom and force being able to rescue this trial. On cue, Caiaphas concludes the hearing with a show And what he thinks is a victory, he's found the charge for the trial that already had a verdict. And then he asked the whole Sanhedrin a rhetorical question. Why do we still have need of witnesses? He has incriminated himself. And with that final statement, he includes an illegal trial with with a final illegal maneuver. Jewish law states that no one can incriminate themselves. There must be witnesses. And even what they accused him of, being blasphemy, was not accurate. And the high priest is not alone in his guilt. Look at verse 64. You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you, to all of you? And all, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. When it says all of the Sanhedrin, it doesn't mean, doesn't have to mean every single person. We know Nicodemus comes with Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the Sanhedrin, and asked for Jesus' body in just a few hours. But it was the majority, it was clearly enough to, to conduct the trial And all that were there that night condemned him to be deserving of death. These liars, hypocrites, blasphemers condemned God himself of blasphemy. How rich is that? And then they show their disdain in a very despicable way. Here's the abuse of Jesus. The condemned is abused. Verse 65, they, they begin to come off of, their, off of their seats. The witnesses have probably faded to the back. The, the, the dependent, this is now condemned, is, is standing in the middle and, and the, the semicircle enfolds on him. And some began to, to spit at him. 
to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps to the face. You ever been spit on? I have. And it is... About nothing will make your blood boil. It's an act of of utter disdain, disgust for somebody else. It means the same thing here. They strike him, they mock him. This blindfolding, they cover his head, prove that you're the Messiah by prophesying. These are all signs of judgment, shame, mockery. at the end of this illegal, immoral travesty of a trial. And Jesus opens not His mouth other than to speak truth of exactly who He is and what's coming. Jesus stands before this trial. But did you know that there's another court that Jesus stands before? It's a righteous court with a perfect judge. In this court, there is no need for 70 men plus one because you don't need to judge rightly or break ties because the one who sits on the bench knows all. And because Jesus went before this immoral court, He stands before this perfect court in your place. Because after the resurrection, He's exalted to the right hand and there He is waiting to come again in clouds of judgment And when the judge of the universe looks to the one in his perfect courtroom, the Lord Jesus sees the marks of the cross still upon him. He sees his justice has been satisfied. And he declares that there is no longer a charge against you who trust in him. His illegitimate verdict brings perfect justice. Through Jesus, the cross, God can be both just... He doesn't overlook sin, and He can be the justifier of those who look to Christ by faith. His false witnesses bring you a true advocate. When the accuser of the brethren appears before the throne of God and says, Did you see what Brian did today? Jesus steps forward and holds out His hands. And he said, yes, I did see what Brian did today. It was sin. It was was bad. But I also see the marks on my son who's paid for it all. His accusations bring you a blameless standing before God. He was accused of what he did not do. And yet the Bible says that in him you are holy and blameless before the beloved. There is no longer a record of your sin. Only the record of Christ's perfect righteousness. And His abuse brings you eternal mercy before the Father. Two courts. The choice you have to make is, which court do you want to be part of? The one where everyone who rejects Jesus Christ will stand before God and be condemned? When the Son of Man comes... where you deny and reject. For this perfect court, where Jesus stands as your advocate by repenting and trusting in Christ.
as your substitute. There is no man worthy to stand before that court. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are guilty. But God's Son, He was perfectly satisfied with Him. The sinless for the sinful. The most amazing gift that's ever been given to anyone in the face of the worst injustice ever committed since the history of the world. Would you bow your heads?